This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. The Fresh Ed live event on April 14th in San Francisco is sold out. I'm sorry we couldn't get a larger room for the event, but the prices in San Francisco are just too astronomical. If you don't have a ticket and would like to sign up for the waitlist, please send an email to info at freshedpodcast.com. We'll try our best to accommodate everybody. For those that are attending the event, we look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. And of course, thank you, Norag, for making this event possible. Today, we look at U.S. imperialism in Venezuela. For the past 20 years, since Hugo Chavez was elected in 1998, in what is today called the Bolivarian Revolution, the U.S. has attempted to overthrow a democratically elected government. The U.S. has wanted to install a leader who supports its political and business interests. In January, the U.S. put its full support behind Juan Guaido, a little-known politician who became the self-described interim president of Venezuela. But who is Juan Guaido, and why was his rise nearly as fast as his fall? On the 23rd of January, uh, Juan Guaido at a street rally declared himself the president of Venezuela and very quickly the U.S. administration managed to get a whole series of countries in Latin America, in Europe and the United States itself to recognize him in that position. My guest today is Jorge Martín, the secretary of the Hands Off Venezuela campaign and a leading member of the international Marxist tendency. He has followed the Bolivarian Revolution for nearly 20 years, visiting the country often, where he has been involved in the revolutionary movement, particularly the workers' control and occupied factories' experiences. In our conversation today, Jorge focuses on the many connections Juan Guaido has to various U.S. institutions, from think tanks to philanthropic organizations and to universities. Jorge makes clear that Juan Guaido was groomed through his education to take a leading role in the right-wing fight against the Bolivarian Revolution. Guaido, in other words, is the latest figurehead in a class struggle supported by elite education in Venezuela and the USA. Jorge Martin, welcome to Fresh Ed. Uh, Hi. So earlier this year, Venezuela made the international news seemingly on a, on a daily and nightly basis. I mean, the government of Nicolas Maduro was under siege by Juan Guaido, um, who declared himself interim president in January. Um, but by late March, when we're recording, it seems like Guaido's name is barely mentioned in the Western press. Can you give a quick overview of the last few months in Venezuela from Guaido's seemingly fast rise out of nowhere to equally fast collapse? Yes, what I have to say, first of all, is that what we've been witnessing in Venezuela in the last two months is an attempted coup by uh, the Washington uh, administration to remove the democratically elected president of Venezuela, Nicolás Maduro. Nothing that's happened in the last two months happened by chance. It was all uh, pre-organized and planned in Washington. This person, Juan Guaido, who was elected as the president of the National Assembly sometime in January, had already been uh, meeting with uh, officials of the Trump administration in Washington and with uh, people in uh, the Lima group of countries in December. 
and they are the ones who told him what he had to do, and, and this was a pre-organized plan. So on the 23rd of January, uh, Juan Guaidó at a street rally declared himself the president of Venezuela, and very quickly the U.S. administration managed to get a whole series of countries in Latin America, in Europe, and the United States itself to recognize him in that position. Uh, this was accompanied by a call for the army to intervene and side with Guaidó, recognize Guaidó as president and remove President Maduro, and for Maduro to step down. So this, this was clearly an attempt to organize a military coup in, in a foreign uh, country. But things didn't go according to plan, even though the United States managed to get about 50 countries to recognize Guaidó, there, there was no movement in the Venezuelan army. There were, there were no significant commanders with command of troops that defected, none, none of them, in fact. And even the opposition demonstrations, which were very big on the 23rd of January itself, then uh, fizzled out. They, they were not very big anymore. And contrary to what the United States and the Venezuelan opposition thought, the Maduro government still had a large reserve of popular support, which was bolstered by the fact that this was clearly an imperialist uh, attempt. And many people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, came out on the streets of Venezuela over the last two months in different cities and localities to oppose imperialist uh, intervention. So basically this has been a, a bit of a flop, a, a, a coup, an attempted coup that really stalled and, and is losing uh, momentum as we speak. In fact, there's a, a funny angle to all this that you, you can see the media, for instance, Reuters, originally called Guaidó, described Guaidó in the, in the press releases as, as uh, interim president. Then they started to say he was the self-proclaimed president. Now they call him a Venezuelan engineer. And that's it. I mean, he, he no longer has an official title of any kind as far as the media is concerned. And, and some people in the U.S. administration were very bothered about this. There was even a press conference by uh, a person who is in charge of uh, Western Hemisphere, Hemisphere Affairs in, in the U.S. State Department, who insisted that the media, by not calling Guaido the interim president, they, they were giving in into the narrative of the Maduro dictatorship, in inverted commas. So yes, it's not going according to, to plan, but that doesn't mean that the plan has finished. There's obviously still the angle of sanctions, economic sanctions, which uh, takes some time to, to make its, the, the impact felt. And this is very serious. It's a very serious attempt to remove the Venezuelan uh, government. And it's the, it's the culmination, I will say, of, of 20 years of uh, interference and, and attempts to smash the Bolivarian Revolution, which included already a coup in 2002 and many other. But by any means necessary, they have tried to put an end to this, uh, to this experiment. So if, if this has been a flop, what is Guaido doing now? I mean, is he still the president of the National Assembly or, you know, what's he doing in Venezuela now after the flop of a coup? Well, he still calls himself the, the interim president, but obviously this is a practical thing. None of the orders that he gives to the army or civil servants are, are followed uh, on. They're not fulfilled. So he has no real power. But he is now, currently, he is uh, organizing a series of street rallies in different cities, which have not been very successful, with the idea 
that then later on at some point they will march on the Miraflores palace, which is the presidential palace, and they will take power. But in fact, the, the opposition is very weak, divided, and, and the opposition ranks are not very mobilized. They can see that this is not working, and the only hope from their perspective is a military intervention by foreign powers led by the United States. But that is also not working because many of the Latin American countries, even right-wing uh, governments like Bolsonaro in Brazil and, um, and Piñera in Chile and others, they have said they're not very keen on a military intervention, not, not because they're, they're democratic or they respect the will of the Venezuelan people, but because they understand that this will be quite a complicated operation that could uh, last in time, that will uh, involve loss of life and, and a high economic cost, so they're not very keen. So at the moment, they're continuing with the pressure, but the, some of the options, what they thought originally, was, which was that this was going to be a quick operation, in a few weeks or a month, uh, Maduro will be removed, the whole uh, of his government will crumble. This has not happened. Uh, so they now in difficulties. So one of the narratives that the press, the media in America at least, was advancing was that Nicolas Maduro was a extreme dictator that, that was hurting everyday citizens in, in Venezuela and needed to be overthrown, sort of a popular uprising, and Juan Guaido was the, the person to do this. How, in your opinion, is that narrative incorrect? It's not only incorrect, but it's, it's precisely the opposite of truth, because they have said, the, the, the mass media and uh, Washington have said, ever since President Chavez was elected in 98, that uh, President Chavez was a dictator, an authoritarian leader, the same things they said later on of, of Maduro. But in fact, if you look at the, the facts, at the record, in 20 years, since 1998, there have been in Venezuela 24 or 25 different national elections, uh, elections for regional governors, elections for president, elections for the, the, the head of state in Venezuela is directly elected in, a, in an election, elections for the National Assembly, uh, referendums, constituent assemblies, you, you name it, they, they've had them. Uh, in fact, uh, I will say they've had too many uh, elections. The, the whole of the political process has been dominated by different election uh, contests. And all of, the, all of those elections have been won by the supporters of the Bolivarian Revolution, with the exception of two. Uh, one was the constitutional amendment referendum, which was lost by Chavez, and he recognized the results. And then the National Assembly elections of 2015, which the opposition won by a big majority. And this, ele this election was also, the, re the result was also recognized. So, I mean, this is a very strange kind of dictatorship where, where there's elections every year. And when the ruling party loses the election, they recognize the result. I mean, it doesn't fit with the, with the actual facts. But it, not only this, it is a matter of public record that the opposition, all of the opposition, all of the main parties of the opposition, carried out an undemocratic military coup in 2002. So they claim to be the democratic opposition, but in fact they are the ones who uh, disrupted the rule of law they removed the democratically elected president in 2002 through a military uh, coup. And when they came to power, they immediately abolished all democratic guarantees uh, in the speech that the coup president made when he took power. They disbanded the National Assembly. They uh, abrogated the, the Bolivarian Constitution. They removed the state prosecutor. They, they removed uh, all the powers were cancelled. 
And all of the parties of the opposition are involved in this. Juan Guaido didn't participate in the coup himself personally because he's too young, but his party, Popular Will, played a key role in the, in the coup. Uh, under another name, uh, Popular Will didn't exist at the time of the coup, but uh, Leopoldo López, the founder of the party, and all of the people involved in this party were part of a different party at that uh, time which participated in the, in the coup. There is a video of uh, Leopoldo López participating in the coup. There's a whole number of leaders of the, of the Popular Will Party that uh, were part of this uh, plot. So, in fact, what you have is the opposite. Uh, the Bolivarian Revolution has been extremely democratic, always working through the, um, the legally established electoral processes. And the opposition has, on many occasions, boycotted the elections, tried to disrupt the elections, and in, at, least in, at least in one case, carried out a coup. And uh, at least in three occasions in the last 10 years, they have uh, attempted, through violent street demonstrations, to overthrow the democratically elected uh, government. So it seems like the opposition is anything but democratic here. I guess, so this podcast is primarily focused on, on education and you know, media is certainly a big educational medium for people in their daily lives. But I want to actually look at Juan Guaido and other members of the opposition and think through how they've been educated and their connections to various institutions. So, you know, where was Juan Guaido educated? Yes, the, the reason why they picked Juan Guaido as the leader of the opposition is because from a media perspective and from the perspective of, of the story they built around him, he is quite a likable person. He, unlike many of the other opposition leaders who are white, European and, and coming from, from an upper class uh, background, Juan Guaido comes from a more humble background and is and is slightly darker skin which coincides with uh, the, the, the general uh, makeup of the Venezuelan uh, population more than any of the, of the opposition leaders who all come from in, in Venezuela there is a, a novel that is called Los Amos del Valle the, the owners of the valley and this this explains the history is an historical novel explains the history of the 60 or 100 families that have dominated Venezuela for the last 200 years since independence the oligarchy and all of the opposition leaders they come from uh, they are related to one or other of these uh, families Leopoldo López is, is a very clear case he, he is linked to the Mendoza family who was a very wealthy family. He, some of his ancestors go back all the way to Simon Bolivar. And uh, so, I mean, the, the, these are very upper class elite people. But Juan Guaido is slightly different. But he was also given the same education in elite institutions that many of the other opposition leaders. He, he comes from uh, the state of Vargas, which is uh, on the coast north of uh, Caracas. But he went to a private university, the Andres Bello Catholic University of Caracas, which is a university of the ruling class, where the sons and daughters of the ruling class are educated and they are trained to occupy positions of power and, and privilege in society. But not only this, then he went to do some uh, post-degree uh, uh, education at the George Washington University in the United States, which is also a private uh, university. And he obviously was, either he had the money for that or he was, uh, he received, uh, he was funded to, to go. 
And uh, over there, he studied under the tutelage of a Venezuelan economist, uh, Luis Enrique Berizbeitia, who is, uh, I mean, you probably heard of the Chicago Boys, right? So this is one of the Chicago Boys. He, he was not educated in the Chicago School of uh, Business, but is part of the same group of, uh, what you would say, neoliberal capitalist economists. He worked for the IMF and he worked for the Venezuelan oil company before, uh, before Chavez came to, to power. And so he was, uh, you could say he was, he was educated and prepared to play the role that he's now uh, playing. That's his background, that's his uh, education, a very elite uh, education which prepared him for the role that he's playing uh, now. So it seems like he's been groomed almost his entire life. I mean, he's, he's quite young as well. Yeah, that's right. He, he has been prepared to, to play this uh, role. And he was part of a, of a generation of uh, opposition students that uh, in 2007 participated in a series of protests against the cancellation of the broadcasting license to RCTV, a private TV channel. And there were big protests at that time. RCTV was one of the, the main TV channels in Venezuela which had participated directly in the organization of the coup in 2002. And so when its license came up for renewal in Venezuela, as in many countries, the, the broadcasting licenses are a public affair that is then granted to different companies, the government decided not to renew the license. And there were big protests over that. They, they said, well, this is, this is a violation of freedom of expression and so on. And, and at that time, there was a generation of student leaders many of whom then became leaders of the opposition. And, and this also didn't happen by chance. There, there was also U.S. involvement of this. Many of these student leaders, including uh, Juan Guaidó, were trained by an organizational organization called Canvas, which is the, is the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies. And this is a group that is funded by uh, U.S. Uh, institutions, the National Endowment for Democracy, the National Republican Institute and other uh, institutions like that, which came out of the opposition student movement in Serbia, uh, Otpor. And basically the idea is to use street protests and so on in order to remove regimes, as they would uh, put it. But, but, but as I say, this didn't happen by, by chance. There, there, was, there has been a 20-year period of uh, constant investment by U.S. government and non-government agencies into the Venezuelan opposition in training uh, leaders, uh, funding them so that they can have offices, they can have access to the media and connections and so on. And Guaido is one of the results of, of this. Another one is uh, Jon Goicochea. Uh, who is a guy who received uh, a human rights prize in, in the United States worth half a million uh, dollars, and he was also involved. Was this the one from the, the Milton Friedman Foundation or whatever? I think it's something like related to, to the Cato Institute or something like this. That they gave him a human rights prize, which was worth half a million people. All, all of these people have been educated in U.S. Uh, educational institutions. They have, they're all part of organizations. Like there was an organization called HABU, Juventud Activa Venezolana Unida, the United Venezuelan Active Youth. And they, they, this organization was created to replicate the model of OTPOR with uh, U.S. funding. And it was to be. The, the idea is to create 
people's power in inverted commas uh, movement that can uh, overthrow a democratically elected government in this case and provide a justification, i.e. this government is authoritarian, is repressing uh, popular demonstrations and therefore should be removed. Anytime there is an imperialist intervention to remove a government that they don't like, they always try to create a justification, whether this be human rights or democracy, humanitarian crisis in this case. So, so this is what's happening now is nothing new. They've been trying this uh, several times in the last 20 years in uh, Venezuela. And Juan Guaido is one of the outcomes of this whole uh, carefully prepared campaign. Uh, what's amazing is is when you're describing all of these different institutions and actors, you, you start realizing how there's such a large network of U.S. institutions, Venezuelan institutions, sort of working together to further the interests of, say, you know, an imperial power like America, but also certain class interests um, in Venezuela. And one of the things that you said was that, you know, Juan Guaido was selected to be a leader because he, you know, came from more humble backgrounds. He didn't look like these white elite class, even though he, he was in a way. The question I guess I have is, who selected him? You know, where, how did that happen? Do we even know who, who selected him? Well, we, we don't know the actual uh, details, but, but the footprints are all over, all over it. It's, it's quite clear that for the last 20 years, since Chavez arrived to power in 98, and particularly since he enacted the uh, enabling laws in 2001, that there has been a concerted campaign by the Venezuelan oligarchy, that is the, the owners of the media, the owners of banks, the landowners, the capitalists, and so on, which are closely linked to U.S. imperialist uh, interest to put an end to this Bolivarian revolution. And Juan Guaido is, is one of the means that they have used, but they have used many o over the last 20 years. And, and some of the leaders have been burnt out by the experience. Some others have, been, uh, have gone abroad. And some have failed miserably, like uh, Pedro Carmona, who, who fronted the coup in, 2000 and, uh, in 2002. But it's quite clear that this is coming from the United States in conjunction with the Venezuelan oligarchy. And why is this? Because the Bolivarian Revolution, for all its uh, faults and shortcomings, uh, represents a genuine attempt to put the interests of the people first, of the majority of the people first, and to use the oil resources of the country, which is a very rich, uh, wealthy country, at the service of social programs that benefit the majority of, of, the, of, the, of society, the workers, the poor, the peasants, and so on. And not only this, the, this, is, this is one part of it, but the other part is that the Bolivarian Revolution uh, represents a genuine attempt of working people to take control over their lives. There's been very widespread experience of workers' control, of community organization, of uh, land agrarian reform. And this is, as someone said uh, once, the, the threat of a good example. This, uh, at, at a certain time, 10 years ago, this was uh, an example to follow by many other Latin American countries. And so, for over 100 years, the United States ruling class has considered uh, Latin America to be its uh, backyard. Uh, through the Monroe Doctrine, they said America for the Americans, which basically meant the whole of the American continent should be dominated by the, American, by the U.S. ruling class. 
and they they could not accept this uh, that this should be happening in in the backyard and, and of course they they've uh, attempted on several occasions to to put an end to the bolivarian revolution to smash it and to smash this good example which which was threatening to spread to other to other countries so this is very much a class struggle yes it is it is a class struggle uh, inside venezuela you can see for, for 20 years, if you examine the voting patterns in, in a city like Caracas, you will see that there are working class areas like Antimano, which have voted consistently for 20 years, 75 or 80 percent for the Bolivarian Revolution. And then you go to other places, upper, upper class and middle upper class areas in the east of Caracas, like uh, El Atillo in Baruta, and they have voted consistently 80% for the opposition. It is a very clear class division inside Venezuela, and this obviously is replicated in the United States. In the United States, there has been a lot of support for the Bolivarian Revolution. And the Bolivarian Revolution, at one point, in, uh, uh, instituted a number of social programs that were helping people in the South Bronx, for instance, and so on. But at the same time, the ruling class in the United States be through democratic or republican administrations has attempted to overthrow and put an end to this government which is which is a scandalous if you if you think about what's been happening in the united states in the last two or three years there's been a big hoo-ha a big scandal about russian interference in the u.s elections but in fact we're talking here about uh, 20 years of the u.s administration funding opposition groups uh, we're talking about tens uh, of millions of dollars of funding for opposition groups in Venezuela. Just imagine if Venezuela was funding opposition groups in the United States, or if Russia was funding uh, opposition groups in the United States, or any other foreign power was interfering in such a way in the U.S. elections. It will be a big scandal, but obviously in, in this case this is disguised and justified by the media by talk of uh, an authoritarian government, human rights, humanitarian crisis, and you, you name it. Uh, they've invented uh, the justification. So you call for a mass campaign in the streets and a mass education campaign against or amongst students and workers to sort of change this dynamic of U.S. imperialism in Venezuela. What would that look like, in your opinion? How could that start, and what effect might it have? Give us some more detail behind this idea of a mass movement? I think for people in the United States, the, the, the main task or the, the main thing that they should do in, in relation to Venezuela is to oppose the imperialist designs of their own uh, government. Just to give you one example, there was a very high profile uh, uh, case on the 23rd of February. There was, uh, it was like D-Day for the opposition. Uh, they wanted to bring in humanitarian aid, they said. The United States had been stockpiling uh, so-called humanitarian aid in Cúcuta, which is in Colombia, in the border with Venezuela, and on that day they tried to uh, force this aid through the border. Uh, and there is a bridge, Santander Bridge, and by the end of the day one of the eight trucks was uh, set on fire, burned down. And the whole of the media and the U.S. administration officials said that uh, it had been the Venezuelan Maduro had set fire to this humanitarian aid, which is a completely scandalous thing. And some even said that this goes against the, the Vienna Convention of, uh, of War Crimes and, and that this provided justification for military intervention and so on. 
But then later on, two, three weeks later, at that time we said that this is a lie, this is not true. It was actually opposition uh, rioters throwing Molotov cocktails that accidentally set fire to one of these trucks. Uh, but two or three weeks later, there was a report in the New York Times that they've been looking at the evidence, the video evidence and so on, and they determined that this was the case, that it was not the Maduro government or authorities that had set this truck on fire, but it was the opposition rioters throwing uh, an incendiary bomb that had set the, the truck on fire. Now, if they lied to you about that question, can you trust anything they say about Venezuela? So the first thing is, is to be extremely critical, to analyze critically anything that the media and the US spokespersons say about what's happening in Venezuela, because they have a vested interest in removing this government. So they, they will not stop at lying. I mean, they did lie to justify the war in Iraq. They said there were weapons of mass destruction, there was an imminent threat, and, and that was then proven to be a straight lie. So when it comes to imperialist intervention, we need to question the motives and, and what they say. Secondly, you, you need to think about this in the following terms. The same ruling class in the United States that is denying the people of the United States of a decent minimum wage, that is denying them a decent free universal health care, that is denying them free education that is uh, that is carrying out policies that are not in their benefits. This is the same ruling class that is intervening in, in Venezuela. And therefore, if you are suspicious of their motives or you oppose their motives in internal, in home policy, you should also question their, their motives in foreign uh, policy. And this is what needs to be explained. Obviously, it's an uphill battle because of the domination of the mass uh, media. But at the same time, because people are already suspicious of what the establishment tells them, of what the ruling class tells them, there is an avenue for also exploring the fact that they, that they are lying, that their motives are not what they say they are. I mean, for instance, uh, John Bolton said openly that, the that the, what he wanted to see was a situation where the oil reserves of Venezuela were exploited, the oil was extracted by U.S. companies. So this is the reason, this is one of the reasons at least. The other reason is they want to put an end to a revolutionary process why the U.S. is intervening there. And this needs to be explained. And there needs to be a campaign of uh, demonstrations, pickets, but also public meetings, uh, education, mass propaganda, to explain these very simple things and to, and to respond and answer to every single one of the lies that they're using in order to justify this foreign uh, intervention. But I think the terrain is fertile because in the U.S., amongst the U.S. public, Working people in the U.S. are already suspicious of the motives of the of the ruling class in the United States. They already realized that they were lied about in relation to Iraq and Afghanistan. That these are very uh, costly uh, foreign military adventures that have costed uh, the U.S. people dearly in terms of money and uh, loss of uh, life, and have not achieved any of their aims. So people are already suspicious of this uh, idea of foreign military interventions, and this can be used to clearly explain this is what's uh, happening. In, in Venezuela, the government attempted, with more or less uh, success, to provide people with free health care uh, for all, free education for all, up and including university education. There was a massive improvement of the living standards of the people. 
And, and this is what the people of the United States also would like to see in the United States. So it seems like there's a lot that the U.S. could learn from Venezuela. Definitely, yes. Well, Jorge Martin, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Okay, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Jorge Martin is the secretary of the Hands Off Venezuela campaign. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and original music of the Fresh Head was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week. 